Chapter 18 Where do zombie babies come from? I drifted back to that room off the main corridor. Things Paul mentioned about the down under, about the people there, who apparently live and work independent of the refugees up above an HG world, those references helped put back the memories the drugs had taken out of my timeline. I dread coming to this part of the diary. The room was empty, lit from a hooded work lamp clamped to the cabinet above a work table. Once upon a time, it had been a machine shop, a place where the forklifts and trolleys and other machines that ran the HG World Store up above would be fixed. Storage cabinets lined the walls at the ceiling and on the floor serving as support for flat steel tabletops. My first thought was of a kitchen in a culinary school. Tools of all kinds hung from racks suspended over a central island work table, and everything had the shine of a pristine kitchen, but every surface showed scars of beatings and scratching. Closer inspection showed scorch marks or dried paint, and the tools seemed more like medieval weapons than things you'd use to stir a stew. There were saws with shark teeth and saws with tiny blades for tougher cuts. A variety of clamps and tongs, mallets with flat rubber heads and hammers with large round steel heads. A crowbar. A machete. I thought of checking the drawers, but the idea of drawing metal across metal seemed to contradict the idea of remaining stealthy. I imagine they contained smaller tools or supplies. It smelled of cleaning chemicals, pine and orange. Working my way across the room, I kept an eye on the office door on the far side. The frosted window panel on the top half of the door showed a light on inside. I tried to keep quiet, but every sound I made bounced around the room. To my mind, the room could have many purposes, but the further along I stepped, the more blemishes emerged. A mist splatter of brownish-red on the underside of a cabinet. A small clump of dark hair fixed by some glossy, hardened residue and pinched in between two steel plates. Toward the far end of the room, the chemical smell got worse, like the area had just been hosed down with industrial cleaner. I thought it might be a good idea to pull back to the corridor and try another door. Given the choice between the rats and the unknown, I somehow chose the unknown. I tried the door and it fell open as I turned the knob. This time, I navigated through without a pratfall. The adjoining room was a morgue. It took me a moment to get my head around why I could walk out of that steel workshop and onto the dimly lit set of some CSI show, complete with a tic-tac-toe board of sealed refrigerator body filing doors, autopsy table, and a whiteboard filled with dry erase equations and notes. The light I saw in the other room actually came from behind another window covering most of the wall to my left. The only other exit seemed to go through a fire door into the room with the curtained window. I made my way over to the small gap in the curtain and peeked through. Part 2 Editorial note. I found this account written into my netbook, hidden in the locked folder I use for just this kind of entry. I was so shaken by the experience that 
I lost my head inside that morgue. I walked out without thinking or looking, right into the arms of two men in coveralls. I never saw their faces, and I don't remember anything after until I woke up in my cot four days ago. For clarity, I revised this section with additional information, but it remains largely my response as I recorded it in the moment. I put it here in the narrative because the dreams always bring me here, at the end of that dark corridor. Diana Rubel was a 44-year-old resident of Altoona, Pennsylvania. From a review of her personal effects, I learned she was a member of the Planetary Fitness Gym. She was a frequent shopper at Sheets, Giant, Barnes & Noble, and Wegmans. At one time, she owned a Lexus and was the general manager of WTF Applebusters, owned by her husband, Bill Rebell. She was pretty, with thick coils of black hair, tanned skin, which she maintained by weekly visits to a salon, and the face of a beautiful woman who worked long hours. Diana and Bill were married five years ago and, apparently due to some medical condition, could not have children. Sometime in the last ten months, Diana was inseminated artificially, leading them to expect their first child sometime last month. Her class ring tells that Diana Rebell graduated cum laude from the University of Rochester in 1989. Her jewelry and other trinkets explain she was a practicing Episcopalian married into a Jewish family. She was a member of the Women's Leadership Council of Altoona. Her cell phone was full of bookmarks and tags identifying clothes for a baby boy. Her gallery covered every inch of the nursery Bill completed for his son. At one point, they had narrowed the list of names for their baby to Casey, Alexander, Ezekiel, and Joshua. From the string of saved text messages, it was clear that Diana and Bill loved each other very much, and the prospect of this new life and a family had reignited their love for one another bringing them out of a period when the life they'd built was based on fried cheese sticks, staff scheduling, and paperwork. I bring this up because Diana Rebell was once a person full of life and hope, filled with love for this new life inside her. Like everyone else, she watched the world end. When I saw her for the first time, it was right as the doors to HG World shut for good. She was feverish and laid out on an improvised stretcher. People who saw her enter the medical bay made her part of the daily conversation, and some asked the doctor about her baby. Her case was described as serious but classified, just like everyone else who ended up in the special part of the infirmary. Some folks emerged from the infirmary to join us, but they did not speak of their experience or of other patients. We stopped asking about the people who did not come out because it was pretty clear why. No one asked about funerals or memorials either because, frankly, very few people inside HG World had the time to offer their own loved ones that final dignity. The best we offered our dead as a community was a moment of silence led by the mayor. Each of us mourned or grieved in our own private way. So no one asked again about Diana Rubel or her baby. I bring this up and share it here because the life of Diana Rubel and baby Rubel 
is otherwise summarized on a clipboard as a collection of statistics and clinical descriptions in a laboratory. She lived two excruciating days after being brought inside and down the ramp to this chamber. She was admitted and classified as infected by a triage nurse named Tammy Thomas who dotted the I in her signature with a heart. The bitch. Another part of the chart indicates that Diana was ordered into isolation for observation, but no treatment was indicated beyond pain medication and a delousing, which was the result of being in the wild for some time. Every hour, someone initialed a printout of vital signs, noting any significant change in Diana's condition. They monitored the progress of the disease and left her on a table, strapped down by the wrists with her legs high and spread, strapped to the stirrups for two days. For two days, with her child still moving inside her and unable to be born naturally, Diana Rubel suffered the unique agony of final phase pervasive assimilative immunonecrosis. Dementia. Rage. Uncontrollable hunger and thirst. In the last phase of the disease, your body becomes corrupt and your blood starts to blacken as the disease begins converting the body for its purposes. In those final days, the brain itself is transformed, occupied, for lack of a better word, by the disease. Who you are and what you were are drowned from inside like a slow stroke. Memories and voluntary functions end as the disease takes over and eventually wins control of your entire body. In that moment, you die. A moment or two later, maybe an hour, the disease figures out how to jumpstart it. But that's not how Diana Rubel died. According to the report, Diana could have lingered another day, maybe more. She had been taken off the IV because her blood wasn't moving fast, hydrating or metabolizing pain medication. But she was in such good physical health that the core of her body refused to shut down, and she likely remained in a deranged but very aware state. Instead of removing baby Rubel... The monsters here continued to monitor and study how his mother's disease carried over to him. The disease consumed baby Rubel, and it turned inside the womb. The clinical notes don't convey the horror Diana must have felt, and certainly not the pain as the thing that was once her baby boy began to tear its way out of her body. I can only hope that the disease had robbed her of any capacity to feel that pain, physically or emotionally, as the thing inside her clawed and tore through her uterus and up into the tangle of intestines, clawing and writhing its way through her, splitting her open to reach for the light above the exam table. I could not imagine the kind of person who would stand where I stood in the morgue not twenty feet away, watching it happen and writing down the names of muscles and patches of flesh being shredded. I made note of the phrases, preternatural strength and explosive dispersal of contaminated body fluids, primal aggressive consumption. 
I imagined this thing covered in thick gray fluid and pink froth slithering up over the body of its mother, lost in the bright lights and by its own immeasurable hunger, gripping strips of flesh to hold on as it followed its last flickering instinct to grasp onto its mother's bosom to suckle and imbibe its curdled, blackened milk. Finally, weighed down and unsteady, it slid sideways and off the corpse down onto the bloodied tile floor. It is not easy for me to imagine it without the evidence still strapped to the table in front of me. Diana Rebell is dead, but the withered, dry, gray eater, the charts call it a necroambulate, just stares up at the light. Without the dignity of a sheet over it, the body is on display and its abdomen is open to display dried, useless organs. Across the room, inside a glass case, Baby Rebel's body twitches like a hunting dog in the middle of a dream. Every so often, it will gurgle or growl slightly, and I want to believe I see Diana Rebel's body respond ever so slightly. If it's one eater's reaction to the sound of another, or the deeply buried connection between a mother and child, even in death, I'll never know. They remain on display behind the glass as a study in decomposition. I can't write anymore. I'm empty. This is the world now. It is hell. Someday, it will be me on that table. Or you. I'm out. Editorial note. I've dreamed of Diana every night. Sometimes I see her and baby rebel together in death. Sometimes it's me on the table as an angelic mother and son try to comfort me as something dark and hungry twitches in my body. Last night, it was Molly in my womb, turning as I ran for the exit of HG World, splitting me open as I crashed through the door into the sunlight. I was lucky that each time I emerged from those nightmares, my Molly was there for me. 